Pew Bibles, page 981 and 982, the triumphal entry. Now, some have commented uh, on this and called it the Ah triumphal entry. It's not, not what the Jews expected. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, this is quoting Isaiah 62.11, and then Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, according from Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you respond by saying together, Hallelujah and thanks be to God. Lord, we can't pray better than we've just sung. We ask that the Holy Spirit right now would not only illumine us, but Lord, show us, show us the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, so that our default is never to think of him differently again. We pray in his glorious name, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. The old writers especially those among, among the Puritans and our forebears and, and the Reformed faith, were want to speak of God's natural work and what they called his special work. And, of course, they were wed to only saying things when the Word of God said those things, and they had a lot of reasons for putting it that way. God's natural work, for example, Jeremiah 32 and verse 41, God rejoices in doing good. His natural work is to do good, even as he sends the rain on the, and the sun on the just and on the unjust and so on. What's his strange work? It's the language of Isaiah 28 and verse 21, where the Lord's arm of, of justice and of judgment is revealed, and that was called God's strange work. And no less a figure than Jonathan Edwards uh, who's known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, or an even more powerful sermon, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. Wow. This is what Jonathan Edwards wrote about God's natural work and his strange work. 
God, writes Edwards, has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. In fact, God's heart doesn't even incline to that, as you'll see in a little bit. God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace, that is, in peace with him. Not that they had it before, but that they turned to him, continue their lives in a peace with him. He is well pleased, God is, if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. That, that, that from Jonathan Edwards. The thing is, what's interesting, is our default is judgment. The fall. And the world brought into the curse, the flood. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually, and God sends a flood on the world. Uh, the Israelites are those who are judged, the nation of Israel, and then the nation of Judah are judged, bringing them into the captivity in Babylon. And, and we think like that. And we think of the judgment that befalls the nations because of their rebellion against God. And then, and then the default begins to eat into us, and that's the way we think about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Judgment. We think the default of God is judgment. Now, there's a place for judgment. We'll get to that. But we're asking about, if you will, God's own default. We say to ourselves, and think of your own life each day, you don't measure up. You're not perfect, you fail, and you think of God as an angry parent who's quite displeased with you, and that transfers to your default to an angry God, and we're all more or less like that. The triumphal entry, Matthew chapter 21, and it's also given in Mark and Luke, The triumphal entry, I think, is a rather difficult thing for preachers to preach on. In fact, I'm convinced it's one of the reasons why people get palm branches (laughs) on the day of the triumphal entry. They think more about the palm branches than they do about what, what this, frankly, rather unusual event means. And today, as we look at the triumphal entry, and particularly at one part of it recorded in Matthew, I hope to dispel your default of thinking of God, first of all, in his strange work of judgment. Okay? Now, it's not that God doesn't judge. He does. He, outside of Christ, the Bible says his wrath abides on us. Not just at the end, but frankly, if you are outside of Christ, every moment that you live is more and more of a debt that you owe for your sin. And it's more and more of a debt to God's long-suffering that he doesn't take you. That's so sobering. Outside of Christ, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience to stay in an unrepentant, rebellious, cold state. It's a mercy that you live the next second. 
So I'm not taking any of that away. And you'll see how judgment comes in here, but it's different than the way the Jews thought of it. If you think of judgment first, when it comes to your thinking about Christ, you've put the cart before the colt. All right? Why don't you think of it in that way? If you think as you're thinking of Christ, you're thinking yourself outside of Christ, you better think of the wrath of God that abides on you. But as you think of Jesus, who is the God-man, I want you to think, first of all, not about the cart of his judgment, but about the cult of his love and of his kindness and of his grace and of his mercy. Triumphal entry. It's pretty obvious that Jesus is the king. But it's not at all, not at all what the Jews expected. So let's dive right into the text. This is in all four of the Gospels. And remember that as you come, as you come really particularly to the last week of Christ's ministry, the Passion Week, the triumphal entry, uh, all the way through the cross and the resurrection, as you dwell on those things, think of, think of hundreds if not thousands of strands of Old Testament teaching, and they're all being woven together in the events of this week, which does make it a particular challenge to preach on it because there's so much involved in it. But all these strands are together, and and as you imagine that that is working itself out in history, I want you to imagine yourself as a Jew in Jerusalem in A.D. 33, on the, uh, whatever the equivalent of the blogs, Facebook, Instagram, I guess even TikTok, <laughs> on the internet, all, all that has been the topic of conversation for the last three and a half years has been this enigmatic figure who was born in Nazareth. Nazareth is the other side of the tracks. It's the other area of Jerusalem. It's Nazareth of, of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. But what talk of this person who was preceded by a man named John the Baptizer who had been executed, this one, this one who had healed those who were sick, and this one who had even given sight to those who were blind, the reports that he had even raised the dead, one notable raising of the dead, just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem and Bethany. And the accounts of Jesus walking on water, of feeding the 5,000, feeding, feeding the 3,000, all, all of these stories were the stuff of the social media of that day. And now you're coming to the Passover. I remember for a Jew... The Passover was the celebration of your being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And all, all the Israelites could think of is we're in the same kind of bondage today. Just replace the name Egypt with Rome. And that was an obsession with the fact that God was going to bring a Passover deliverance to them delivering them out of the Egypt of Rome and making them not only free people, but those, those who would reign in that area. So all of these things are coming together. This account of Jesus, now the Jews recognized that Jesus was a prophet. It's even mentioned at the end of Matthew 21. That they knew. They knew that this Jesus was a prophet like 
Moses himself, who came with the word of God. But could he be the king? Could he be the promised Messiah? It's a couple of days before the Saturday, before uh, the Sunday of the triumphal entry, and the accounts begin to flow that Jesus is leaving Jericho. Remember that, that Joshua Joshua led the Israelites into Jericho. It was, a, it was the city that, that showed Israel's victory over its enemies. Jesus is leaving Jericho. He is walking 17 miles on a military road that the Romans used for their own conquest of Israel. He is making his way to Bethany where on the Sabbath he rests. Bethany the place where Jesus raised Lazarus, and probably probably he's staying with Lazarus. The people are flocking to Bethany to get a view of this Jesus. Everything looks very, very much like this Jesus is the promised king. And now it comes to the Sunday, and Jesus is going to begin to make his way to Jerusalem, where where. He would take over, so they thought. This, this they would say, is the time. This would be a little bit like, oh, far more significant. You have your favorite candidate for the president of the United States, and you hear that, that he or she is going to announce for his or her candidacy for the presidency, and then the time comes, and you wait for that announcement. This is what this is like, and they are convinced that this is the king who is going to come and Jesus is now making his way to the city of Jerusalem. Now with that, let's look at Matthew chapter 21. As Jesus now, well, he shows himself to be the king, quite frankly. Prior to this, remember, there had been secrecy. If people wanted to declare Jesus as the king or the Lord, he told them to be quiet. Not so right now. The veil of secrecy is beginning to come down on all of this. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And you have to understand these first verses. There's a, um, a right that lords had, that masters had, called impressment. And if you were a king, for example and you came to an area, you had the right to claim whatever property you wanted for your kingdoms, a little bit like eminent domain, I guess, in many ways. And so this is what's in back of Matthew 21 and verse 1. They, the disciples in Jesus, are drawing near to Jerusalem, where the king's going to reign, right? And they come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, which is between Bethany and Jerusalem, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, which is probably Bethpage itself, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Now remember what a colt is. A colt is an untamed donkey, and you need to keep it with its mother to kind of keep it quiet and keep it calm. So he asks for both, although he's only going to ride on one of them, which is significant. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, watch, not a Lord, the Lord needs them. This is Jesus' explicit declaration that he is God, that he is the king, that he is the master, that he has the right to do this, and because of that he will send them at once 
Uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Matthew adds this, under the inspiration of God, say to the daughter of Zion, and note these passages, three of them are significant. Isaiah 62, 11. In Isaiah 62, this is one of the many passages that the Jews knew referred to the Messiah. Say to the daughter of Zion. Then Zechariah 9 and verse 9, Behold, stop and think of this, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And don't misunderstand this. It's not that Jesus is going to ride on both. He's going to ride on the colt. And there's a reason for that. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. So here Jesus is, he's the secrecy taken away. He is the Lord and he is giving that proof. Now he said, well, what, what's this business with the colt? In 1 Samuel, David, David's still alive, but he anoints Solomon, his son, as the king. And there's a reason why he does that while he's still alive. But David wants the Israelites to know that this king is a king that comes in peace. And so David has his son Solomon, who was anointed as king, ride into Jerusalem on a colt. This is a way of saying, listen, that the son of David is the king. And who was the Messiah? The Messiah was the son of David. So all that significance is in here. Now, watch, watch how these prophecies are fulfilled in verses 7 through 11. They bring the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. That is, he sat on the cloaks. That's a way of showing his kingship. He is sovereign even over the clothing of these people. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road. We're recognizing him as king. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Another statement of the victory of a king, because the king would come and would vanquish things. The cutting of the branches and spreading them on the way was saying, this, this is the victor. This, this is the king. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Who is the son of David? Solomon, who rode into Jerusalem as king. This is the greater son of David, and he is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, which really means save, Lord, or bless, Lord. But save, Lord, is the idea. Lord, deliver us. They're quoting from Psalm 118 in verse 25 and 26. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And they link together prophet and king. And they're declaring that, that he's one and the same. He is the great prophet and he is the great king. Now, I want you to think about these texts, Isaiah 62. And that was connected with Isaiah 63. Zechariah 9 and verse 9 and Psalm 118 and verse 25 and following. 
you're a Jew, and you've read these texts, and you know they speak of the king, and that king is going to vanquish your enemies. And this, these are the things that you would have memorized from Isaiah 62 and verses 10 through 12. His recompense is before him. He, he is going to get his just due. And then in chapter 63, he will tread the winepress in his anger. Their lifeblood will be spattered on his garments, staining all his apparel. For the day of vengeance is in his heart. I trampled down the people in my anger. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. You would have memorized that. You would have sung that and identified it with Messiah. Zechariah 9 and verse 9, the prophecy of the one coming into Jerusalem on a colt. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I wield you like a warrior's sword, victory over their enemies. And even in Psalm 118, save, Lord, save from what? All nations surrounded me, and the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, and the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. These are the emails, folks. These are the headlines. These are the, these are the, these are the stories and the blogs of what people believe Jesus is going to do now that they see clearly he is the son of David. Isn't that your default? It is mine. I have to confess to my own sorrow. You see wickedness all around you. You see the oppression of wickedness. And you want justice. You want it stopped. You want God, be honest, to pour out his wrath upon those that are opposing him. That's the way the Israelites responded. But this is what they missed from the same texts, Isaiah 62, Zechariah 9, and Psalm 118. Your salvation comes. They shall be called the redeemed of the Lord. Zechariah 9. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule, a rule of peace, shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free. From Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is how the Lord will fulfill Hosanna, save us. That's what they missed. What did they miss? They had prophet down, a prophet like unto Moses. He declared the word of God. He showed the word of God. He was the one who did signs, as Moses did, confirming it was the word of God. That's clear. And they were very right that he's the king. Absolutely right. They missed what was in the middle. Prophet priest, and king. 
And as a result, they really messed up what king meant because they eliminated priest. Because they forgot that Isaiah 53 is in the Old Testament. There has to be a suffering servant for there to be salvation. There has to be one who comes who spills the blood of the covenant. Why? Because the Jews missed what I'm sorry to say we all miss too often. The big big problem is not politics, folks. The big problem is the human heart. The greatest oppression is not from states. The greatest oppression is from human wickedness. The greatest evil is not in governments. The greatest evil is from the human soul under the fall. And that's what is the root of all other forms of oppression and all other forms of wickedness. It's not a political statement, but it's a statement we need to make. Mass shootings, horrible, and there's more of them. And, at least in my opinion, this is the Lord again shouting to us in our pains. And what do you hear in response? More gun control. More gun control. More gun, when in fact, there is no evidence that more gun control solves the problem. It's not gun control, folks. It's self-control. It's not gun control. It's heart control. It's not gun control. It's God control. And until there's something of a grasp of that in our culture, which I hope will come by revival, you're not going to get anywhere dealing with the same problem the Jews dealt with, the problem of oppression. If I could put it like this, the heart, a fallen heart, is like a nuclear reactor. And it's a nuclear reactor that sends out all of the radiation of sin and of misery and of curse all over the place. It affects us. It affects all around us. It pollutes the world. Okay, You have the world system that is connected with sin. And, oh, the devil knows how to use that big time because he's an accuser of the brethren. And so you have the unholy trinity of the world and the flesh and the devil. And God knows that. But Israel didn't know that. Yes, they had prophet. They really messed up king because they missed priest, right? So, as you continue in the text, because of this mistake, this mistake meant what we dealt with before. Remember that, that Jesus now, see, it's Passover, okay? And Jesus is to be the Passover lamb. You'd think they'd have that in front, but they did. But, but this is what I mean by the mistake of putting the cart before the colt. The cart is what? It's, it's a judgment that will come. And this is not a matter of balance, folks. This is a matter of saying all that the scriptures say. The wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. There is a day of wrath. There is a day of judgment where the cart of God will thresh all that is wicked. And for those who have resisted God, those who have rebelled against God, those who have not made peace with God through Christ, those who have gone their own way. May I ask you, what else can God do but be just? 
You really want a God that overlooks wickedness? Then he's not a just God. In fact, he's not even a merciful God. He's a Casper Milktoast God. So for God to be just, there must be a punishment of sin and rebellion and wickedness. But that's God's strange work. God's natural work is work that flows, quite frankly, from the cross. Because the cult, the cult is the peace mission of Christ. Remember that, that Solomon went in Jerusalem on a peace mission as a king. The people should not be afraid of him as the successor of David, but rather as the one that they should love. Jesus is on a cult going into Jerusalem on a peace mission in which the blood of the covenant that would bring about Hosanna, salvation, would be shed by him as the Passover lamb. And we don't like suffering servants. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with a triumphal view of God's victory over all that's evil. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, you've heard this before, but I don't know any, any better way to put it. If you picture two mountain ranges, one at the back and one at the front, that back mountain range is God's strange work. Human history has come. People have, for whatever reason, forgotten God, rebelled against God. They have hated God. They have disregarded God. They have sinned against God. And God's strange work is that work of having to justly pronounce judgment. That's the back mountain range. The front mountain range is the mountain range of God's natural work because on top of that mountain range is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which full and free forgiveness come to the world by which there's peace with God. And that cross, that cross that is in, in the presence of the glory of God and his justice and his mercy, that cross will cast a wonderful shadow over that whole period between the first mountain range and the second that we call the gospel age. And in that gospel age, while God does stop things in his justice, his normal work is his natural work of graciously saving people and bringing them to himself. That's the gospel age. That's why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Now let's, let's, put, the cult, okay, let's put the cult before the cart for a few minutes as we draw this to a close. How do you think about Jesus? Again, we're way too quick to go to the judgment model. There's one way that Jesus described himself, and there's virtually the same way that Jesus is described. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, your king is coming to you humble or gentle and mounted on a donkey, the colt, 
the foal of a donkey. Now that word humble is the same used in Matthew 5 and verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But the only other time that term is used in the Gospels is when Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly, Matthew 11 and verse 29. That's the only self-description of Jesus. How do you think about him? I am gentle and lowly is humble. Gentle, there's no really one word you can use to describe it. Jesus, if you want to put it like that, Jesus is approachable, folks. Jesus is approachable. He's not, Jesus didn't describe himself when he said gentle and lowly. He didn't say, I am austere and demanding in heart. Sorry to say, some people represent Jesus like that. Austere and demanding in heart. Exalted and dignified in heart. He is exalted. He is dignified. But in his state of humiliation, and even now, he doesn't describe himself that way. I'm meek and gentle, lowly of heart. Or my favorite way to put it. Crabbed and crabby. I'm not... (laughs) I'm not crabbed, I'm not limited, and I'm not crabby the way we can all get. Jesus is not trigger-happy. Jesus is not harsh. Jesus is not reactionary. Jesus is not easily offended. Jesus does not point his finger. He opens his arms. Okay? The cross, folks, the cross is Jesus' heart. And that heart animates his arms of love reaching out to us. That's why he would add in that, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So much of this is developed so beautifully in the book Gentle and Lowly by Ray Ortland. And so a lot of my own language, I can't say it better than he does. But that, that's, this is what we're talking about with Jesus His hands, his feet, his face, his arms. You say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound quite right. Really? God manifests himself to Moses. And how, when he declares his name, what does he say? I am God, holy and just and damning the wicked. He says, I am the Lord who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Jesus' whole life, Moses was not able to look on the face of God. It wasn't the way to do it. There needed to be a mediator God. When the mediator God, Jesus, comes, then you can look in his face. And when you see his life and his ministry, that's God's love in action. Isn't that great? A disconsolate woman who's an outcast. She's a Samaritan woman. And there's difficulties with her child. And Jesus ministers to her. Lepers, leper, leprosy, leprosy was 
was the model of what sin is in the Old Testament, and you weren't to touch a leper. Jesus didn't come to break that law. Jesus came to undo it. So he touched the lepers and he healed them. A disconsolate widow wondering how, with her son's death, she would ever be able to provide for herself. And Jesus comes. A blind Bartimaeus in the middle of a crowd of people who are crying out for Jesus' attention. And Jesus singles out blind Bartimaeus. Zacchaeus, a wee little man. Zacchaeus, a tax collector. The man that was despised. And you know what that's like as April 15th comes along. You're not a fan of the IRS. You wouldn't have been a fan of Zacchaeus. Jesus not only ministers to him, he says, I'm going to go to your house. And he ate. He ate with publicans and with sinners and also with Pharisees, I might add. This is God, folks. This is a very, very unexpected king for the Israelites who had thought in very different ways that way. This is a God, put it this way, this is a God who moves towards sin, not away from it. See the ravages of sin in the street, the ravages of sin in your neighborhood, the ravages of sin in your home, the ravages of sin in our nation, the ravages of sin in the nations. Now you know why we have a great commission. Because Christ, with good news, goes to all of the world because he's gentle, he's approachable, and he's humble, and all can come to him. That's why... Behold your God. Now people hear this and they say, but wait a minute. Boy, you start preaching like that too. I guarantee you, we'll get this in our circles. You preach like this too much and people are going to be lax about sin. And we need to be very serious about holiness and sin. Oh yes, we are. Because we're serious about the cross. That shows the seriousness of sin. But what shadows does the cross cast? It casts the shadow of the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It casts the shadow of the love of God that constrains us. And people say, how does that work? You really come to Christ? What does that mean? It's not just a matter of I ask Jesus to come into my heart. What does that mean? It's kind of like eating a popsicle. You know, what does that do? I don't know what that means. You embrace Jesus. If he's approachable and he's God and you need him, you, you take him as your Lord and as your Savior and as your God. You have a, you have a relationship with him that is as close as a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband. You embrace him. And he gives you all that is his. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his atoning work on the cross. He gives you the Holy Spirit to make you a partaker of the divine nature. He gives you his love. He gives you his heart. See, if you're a real Christian, you actually have the heart of Christ. And pray tell, if you have the heart of Christ, are you going to want to sin? That's why Paul says, Do we continue in sin 
that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who died to sin, you embrace Christ as death to your past life, how can we who died to sin live any longer therein? Behold your God. So, the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. What's it all about? It's all about the fact that there's no one in the universe more approachable than Jesus. You, you, can, you can see the children, the children in one of the accounts of the triumphal entry are, are praising are praising the Lord Jesus, and the, and, and the disciples are upset. And, of course, Jesus says that they're quiet. The stones will cry out. But here's the point. Even, even little children are not afraid of Jesus. In the anti-king, Ahasuerus, you're afraid of this guy. <laughs> Jesus, you're not. You, you bow before him in reverence. You embrace him in love. So what Jesus is saying is, let me show you by the triumphal entry what I meant when I spoke in what we know of as Matthew 11 and in verse 29. Come to me. You just take God in his holiness in your sin, and you'll flee. But when you know this Jesus, who is eminently approachable, you'll say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that with my weakness, with my fears, with my frustrations, with my anger, with my repeated sin, with, my, with all of my coldness of heart, with all of my backsliding, take all that garbage. And Jesus says what? Come to me, all who labor. And those of us who like to really work hard, you begin to lapse into thinking that somehow I'm going to be accepted because I work harder than others. And Jesus says, you get exhausted, don't you? Because that's not the way. You're right with me. Come to me when you're exhausted from your labors and are heavy laden. People heavy laden with bushels of laws that are dumped on them. People who are heavy laden with the barbed arrows from the devil accusing them of all of their sins and of their background. Heavy laden as you think of the shame that was created by your own life, how you basically fouled everything up. Jesus has come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There's no one else that can promise that. I guarantee you, you try to have religion other than what's rooted in Christ. And the best you can say is you're going to get utterly exhausted. Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Why? Because he says, you're to take my yoke upon you. The yoke is a bar that you put on oxen as they pull loads. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am, here it is, gentle and lowly in heart. I'm approachable. In essence, Jesus says, I'll take that burden. I'll take that burden. So my burden is not a burden. It's light. And my yoke that he take upon me, it's really no yoke at all. I already carry it as your servant. I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's how you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy 
my burden is light. What a wonderful God. That's why we're going to sing, Behold your God. So please think about the triumphal entry, not with the default of God's judgment. I don't want you to be the Jews of Jesus' day. Yes, God will. He will in his own time and in his own way. The cart of judgment will come. Sometimes there's, there's bits of it in history to stop what's evil. That's true. There will be that at the end of the world. But here's the great text about God's great work. He says, I don't afflict the children of man willingly. That's my strange work. My natural work is mercy and grace and kindness. And dear brothers and sisters, we can't be bathed in that enough. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this unexpected king. We thank you for, again, this is the marvel of Scripture. Jesus could not have been clearer about the fact that he is the king. He's the Lord. He is the one who does what Solomon did as the son of David. He is the one who receives the palm branches. He's the one who receives the, the branches that are thrown down. He's the one that receives the cloaks. He doesn't stop it. He doesn't stop them at all from this. But that language is not the language of one who squashes his opponents. It's the language of that one who in the shadow of the cross is always gentle and lowly. Please, God, change our default so that we just love to put the arms of our faith around the Lord Jesus, to feel his heart beating into our own breasts, and to know that in that marvelous work the Spirit does, he takes the very heart of Christ and makes that our own. Oh God, do it, we pray. That's the great miracle we desire. Do it to the glory of your saving name. Yes, Lord, Hosanna. Save, Lord. Do it by conquering the great enemy of the human heart and replacing it with the heart of Christ. Amen.